0: Hey, snorkeling and smorgasbords, deck chairs and dance floors, swimming pools and shopping sprees. A cruise is supposed to be great fun. In 2008, a record 16.8 million people took their vacation on a cruise ship. You know the old cliche, cruises are for the overfed and the almost dead is apparently no longer true. Lots of people these days seem to be cruising. And one of the most popular destinations is the Mediterranean. A Mediterranean cruise sounds particularly glamorous, does it not? And yet, after tonight's study, you might have a different opinion. For the Apostle Paul, he set sail on a Mediterranean cruise that was more of a bruise. Passengers were singing the blues on this particular cruise. You know, at the outset of Paul's ministry, God told him that he would preach to Gentiles and kings, and the emperor Nero was both. It was inevitable that Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, would witness to Nero, ruler of the Gentiles. But how do you manage a meeting between a little guy like Paul and the head honcho in Rome? Paul was unable to even afford passage from Caesarea to Rome. But once again, God's providence worked to accomplish God's purposes. When Paul got tired of being a political football, getting kicked back and forth between the Jews in Jerusalem and the Romans in Caesarea, he appealed his case to the Caesar. As a Roman citizen, Paul had the right. And as a Roman governor, Festus footed the bill. And in Acts chapter 27, Paul embarks on an all-expenses-paid trip, a Mediterranean cruise, courtesy of the Roman treasury. Verse 1, And when it was decided that we should set sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. Augustus was the name given to the emperor himself. Thus, the Augustan regiment may have been a battalion assigned specifically to the royal household. If so, Paul was escorted by Caesar's secret service on his trip to Rome. And so entering a ship of Adramamidium, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia, which today would be southern Turkey. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. And notice how Luke puts it. We put to sea. Notice it was not just Paul making this voyage, but Aristarchus also traveled with Paul, as did Luke. Luke writes, We put to sea. Now it was not uncommon for Paul to travel with a number of his friends. The Apostle Paul was a people person. It's been said, Paul had a genius for friendship. No man in the New Testament made fiercer enemies, but few men had better friends you listen carefully two porcupine friends named Willie and Bill were talking one day of porcupine eels said Willie to Bill a sorrow with a sorrowful moan isn't it sad that we live all alone the animals they shun us I have not a friend please tell me Bill oh what is my sin Don't sweat it, my friend, said Porcupine Bill. It isn't your sin. It's just your sharp quills. We live all alone. That's just how it goes because no one wants quills in the end of their nose. I've got it, said Willie. The answer, I know. I'd rather have friends, so my quills have to go. But Bill exclaimed, it doesn't make sense. Without your sharp quills, you'll have no defense. Willie thought and he thought But he couldn't decide, should he give up his quills or save his own hide? And then in a flash, he decided with glee, I'll pull out my quills in the trunk of that tree. With all of his might, he ran at the trunk and into the bark went his quills with a thunk. His quills all came out in the trunk of that tree, and Willie exclaimed, At last I am free. Free to be eaten, said Bill in disgust. You'll find out real soon there's none you can trust. But Willie said firmly, I must leave my cage. I'd rather risk friendship than die of old age. Far into the night, they debated this matter. Live safely alone or make someone fatter? The porcupine question remains to this day. Is it outreach or safety? Which one do you say? Everybody will lose one or the other, their quills or their friends. You can't keep both. If you want friends, you've got to drop your guard. You've got to lose your quills. And you've got to risk being known. And you've got to take a chance and invite a friend into your life. Reach out to God's people. Lose your quills and God will guide you into some good fellowship. That's what we learned from Paul. In verse 3, the voyage continues. And the next day we landed at Sidon and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. And once again, notice what Paul's doing. He's hanging out with his friends. I've heard it said, Paul was both a great soul winner and a great friend maker. If you're going off to college, first thing you need to do is find you some good Christian friends. Your first day of high school, You need to find some good Christian friends. When you're in that neighborhood, first thing to do is to seek out some good Christian friends. We all need fellowship. Paul sought friends when he landed in Sidon. And notice Sergeant Julius, how he trusted Paul. Apparently, he wasn't worried that he would escape. He recognized that Paul was a man of his word, and so he let him go in fellowship with his friends. Verse 4. When he had put out to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary, and when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. Now the ship's navigator used the island of Cyprus to block the westerly winds. They swung around, and they ended up docking in the port city of Myra. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy. Again, they were headed to Rome, and so here they make a change. They find a cargo ship that was carrying wheat from Egypt to Rome, a ship from Alexandria, and he put us on board. And when we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus, now the wind had caused choppy seas and slow sailing. They sailed slowly, Luke tells us. In smooth waters, the 130 miles from Myridis, Nidus could have been covered in a few short days. Instead, under these extreme conditions, it took many days. Verse 8 continues, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Solmone, passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lacia. Now, look at a map, and Italy was due west of Nidus, but the headwinds were so strong that the captain sailed southwest, crossed wind to the island of Crete. They landed in a little village called Fairhavens on the southern coast of the island. Now, when much time had been spent, and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, notice this. After mid-September, sailing in that portion of the Mediterranean had become dangerous. After mid-November, it was impossible. The fast that Luke here refers to was Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. That means that it's currently mid to late October. Dangerous, but not impossible. Now, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss not only of the cargo and ship, but also of our lives. They should have listened to Paul. Paul warns them of the dangers. Now, Paul wasn't a sailor by trade, but understand, he was a seasoned traveler. Think of all the places that Paul went. Think of the various voyages that he took. This wasn't his first cruise. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, when he lists his trials, the trials that he's endured, this is what he tells us. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. This guy has some experience. He has shared many a nautical nightmare. Paul has has no desire to spend another night in the water as shark bait. He warns them, this is a mistake. Sergeant Julius should have listened to Paul, but in verse 11, nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship Than by the things spoken by Paul. Once again, siding with the experts gets a person in trouble. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete opening toward the southwest and northwest in winter there. Now, it wasn't just the harbor. The sailors didn't want to be stuck in fair havens for the winter, because Fairhaven's was a little hamlet. It was a village. There was nothing to do in Fair Havens. They wanted to go to Phoenix. There was stuff to do in Phoenix. The NBA's in Phoenix. They could go to a Suns game for that matter. Phoenix had some nightlife now. They had some bars and revelry and women. Notice, lust tainted their logic. They've stopped thinking rationally now. The crew members take a vote, and the majority says, sail to Phoenix. Hey, always be leery of the majority. (laughs) God's will will often conflict with majority opinion. At times, following God requires us to go against the grain. Verse 13, when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. Notice the wording, the south wind blew softly. Notice at first, this was an easy path. It looked like an easy voyage. But the easy path isn't always God's path. Remember that. So often we think just because the door's open, just because circumstances are favorable or convenient, that God must be in it, not necessarily. Here the crew gets duped. Reminds me of Proverbs 14, verse 12. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Hey, be careful that you don't get duped by the easy way. Notice here the four ways that we can miss out on God's will. Notice here four ways that we can miss out on God's will. First, get impatient. Get impatient. We've got to get to Phoenix Let's push it now. Oh, yes, it might be a little dangerous. Oh, yeah, Paul's warning us, but hey, we can do this. Let's push it. That can get you out of God's will. Second, take a vote. Side with the majority instead of seek the Lord. That can get you in trouble. Third, test the winds. Let the circumstances dictate your decisions rather than principles and convictions and Scripture. Look for the easy way. The path of least resistance. And then fourth, let your lust take over. <laughs> you know The sailors wanted to make Phoenix for all the wrong reasons. Their glands got in the way of God's guidance. Four ways to miss God's will. Get impatient, take a vote, test the winds, and let your lust take over. In contrast, if you want to walk in the center of God's will, be patient and learn to wait. Rely on God's wisdom, even when it's unpopular with your friends. Base your decisions on conviction, not convenience, and walk in the Spirit. Rely on God to satisfy your needs. Well, notice verse 14. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called a Euroclydon, And we get our word typhoon from the Greek word translated here, tempestuous. A typhoon was stirred up in the, in the sea. The sailors named these winds after the direction of their origin. Eurocliton means the northeasterner. A sudden storm arose, a typhoon. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. Now Phoenix was 45 miles up the coast of Crete from Fairhaven's, But suddenly the winds shift and these soft southern winds turn into violet northeasterlies. Huge swells were suddenly slamming into the wooden hull of the boat. If they fought the storm, if they tried to hold their course, the boat would break apart under the stress. The sailors' only option was to sail with the wind, stop resisting, and just try to ride out the storm. Verse 16. And running under the shelter of an island called claudia we secured the skiff with difficulty. Up until this point, they had been dragging their lifeboat And all of a sudden, rather than lose the dinghy, they try to tie it to the main ship. And when they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship. As the waves were slapping against the side of the ship, they could hear the timbers start to creak and even crack. And so they strung ropes under the hull in hopes of stabilizing the frame and keeping the ship from breaking apart. They're taking desperate measures. This storm is severe. And then we're told, in fearing lest they should run aground, on the Surtis sands, they struck sail, and so were driven. Finally, they just gave up. The more they fought the northeastern winds, the further south they were pushed. And the sailors feared. What, what Luke says here, he calls them the Surtis sands. These were quicksands off the coast of North Africa. The area was nicknamed the ship's graveyard. And so to avoid the dangers, the seamen, they lowered their sails, and they just drifted. This made them completely vulnerable. Verse 18. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. I mean, the more weight the ship carried, the more momentum in the wrong direction, and so they started ditching cargo to lighten the load. Now, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, All hope that we would be saved was finally given up. Now remember, this was before the day of electronic navigational devices. The ancient mariners, they plotted their course by looking at the stars. But it had been weeks since they'd even had a break in the clouds. There was no clue as to where they were or how far they drifted off course. These salty seamen, they were terrified. Their desperation now gives way to despair. The experts on board have given up. Everyone had given up, in fact, except Paul. Verse 21. But after long abstinence from food, you remember they were at sea two weeks. They thought the trip was going to take less than a day, so they weren't prepared. They didn't have the food they needed. Then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. And not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. how do you like this guy? He jumps up on deck and he says, hey, I told you so. They probably would have thrown him overboard if it was not for what he said next. And now I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. How do you know that, Paul? For there stood by me this night an angel of God. To whom I belong and whom I serve. And I love that terminology. Notice, an angel of God, the God to whom I belong. Can you say that tonight? I hope you can. Hey, know to whom you belong and it's less likely you'll become someone else's pawn. People won't push you around when you know to whom you belong. The angel appeared to Paul saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Apparently, Paul had prayed. He had asked God to save the passengers and the crew. Then he concludes, Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. In a crisis, real leadership rises to the surface. Everyone had given up hope except Paul. Rather than give up, he steps up. He says, take heart, for I believe God. You know, it's easy to believe God in a nice setting like this tonight, in a home or in a sanctuary. It's easy to believe God there. But it's in the midst of the crisis. It's in the midst of the storm. When your boat's about to break apart, when you haven't seen the sky for days, then can you say, for I believe God. Can you take heart even in the midst of the storm? Do you believe God's promise even in the midst of the storm? Verse 27. Now when the 14th night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea. You know, today the Adriatic technically is between Italy and Eastern Europe. But in Paul's day, it referred to, to the whole eastern half of the Mediterranean. They would spent 14 days And about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. It could be that they heard the breakers now slapping on the rocks, slapping on the shoreline, so they realized they were coming close to land. And they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. When they'd gone a little further, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. The Greek word here translated soundings means to heave the lead. That's what the word literally means, to heave the lead. They were dropping these lead anchors and they were timing them to see how long it took to hit the bottom. They could tell that the water was getting shallower. A fathom is about 6 feet, so their first measurement was 120 feet. Their second measurement was 90 feet. Obviously, they're getting closer to the shore, and they're getting there quickly. Verse 29, "Then Then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. Remember, it's still dark. I mean, this is terrifying. It's pitch black. No one can see. They know they're getting close to shore. I mean, it's like driving with no headlights. You know you're going to crash, but you just don't know when. And so they drop off four anchors off the stern of the ship, and they pray for sunrise. Verse 30, And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff, remember that skiff that they had tied onto the back of the ship, They were going to let it down under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Note you had to stay put to be saved. Jump ship in an attempt to save yourself and you drown. And it's just like our salvation. We have to remain in Christ to be saved. Salvation is in Christ. We have to stay put. We have to abide in the vine. We have to continue in our faith. Jump ship, fail to abide, launch out on your own, and you'll drown. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day. You have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from your head of any of you. Now, the crew members, they were about to burn some calories. You ever been out in some rough water? It can be taxing. They have received the Lord's promise. Now they need to eat some protein. And so Paul encourages them to take food. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all when he had broken it, he began to eat. And then they were all encouraged and also took food for themselves. And notice by now, the crew has a new captain. Notice this. Prisoner Paul has now become Captain Paul. He's the one giving the orders. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship, quite a crew. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. I mean, They knew they were in for a rough landing, so they throw over their cargo. And when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. The plan was to just pick up a head of steam and just aim for the beach and try to just run the ship right up onto the beach. That's not what happened. And they let go the anchors and left them in the sea. They started to make their mad dash, meanwhile losing the rudder ropes, and they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for the shore. But striking a place where the two seas met. In other words, they hit a sandbar. They ran the ship aground. They got stuck on the sandbar. And the prow stuck fast and remained immovable but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. The the front of the ship stuck into the sandbar. It left the rear of the ship exposed, and so the waves just beat against the stern, and the ship started disintegrating from the back to the front. This was a tough voyage. By now, the wooden ship is barely intact, and so once it gets stuck, the waves begin to disassemble what's left. Verse 42. And the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. And why would they do that? Well, according to Roman law, if a prisoner escaped, the soldier assigned to guard him had to finish his sentence. And so these soldiers planned to just go ahead and kill off the prisoners in order to save their own skin. But the centurion, you remember the head honcho, Julius, wanting to save Paul, he kept them from their purpose. And commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. And so just as God had promised, all who stayed with the ship made it safely. Now isn't it ironic? The ship's boards and timbers acted as life rafts to get the crew to shore. And this is why it is always crucial to stay with the ship. Stay on board. If they had jumped ship, if they had given up, they would have drowned in the surf. It was because they stayed in the ship that these boards and timbers turned into life rafts, and that's what saved them. And the same is true in our relationship with God. Don't give up on God. Don't bail on His will. Don't jump ship. Stay exactly where God has called you in that marriage, on that job, in that neighborhood, on that team. Stay exactly where God has called you, even if it's a turbulent situation, even if the relationship seems to be breaking apart, even if your life feels like it's falling apart, remain where you've been called, for it's the lessons you learn there, it's even the pain that you endure there that becomes the very thing that saves you later in your life from future obstacles stay with the boat and God will supply you what you need to be successful in the future chapter 28 now when they had escaped they then found out that the island was called Malta The island of Malta is about 58 miles south of Sicily. Now, recall the original destination for this ship was the Cretan port of Phoenix, which was 45 miles west of Fair Havens. This trip should have taken less than a day, 45 miles. Instead, they were at sea for two weeks, and they traveled 645 miles. Talk about a detour They turned a 45-mile trip into a 645-mile trip. And this is what happens when you follow the wrong voices. Satan's plan for our lives starts out as a shortcut. That's how he presents it. That's how he paints it. But in the end, man, it's a long, hard, costly voyage. I heard a story of a professional race car driver. He was hired to drive a 15-block section of Colorado Springs, Colorado. The driver was extremely careful. He observed all of the speed, all of the traffic laws, and his time over the distance was 9 minutes, 35.1 seconds. Well, after he was finished, he was allowed to drive the same 15-block course as fast and as reckless as possible. With police permission, he drove at illegal speeds. He was guilty of 52 traffic violations. He could do it. He was a professional race car driver. And yet, here was the surprising results. 52 violations, as fast as he wanted to go, he was only able to shave 3.9 seconds off his time. That's right. You see, we assume that the laws are in place to slow us down. In reality, we lose very little time doing the right thing. Very little time. Even the little bit of time that you do lose is worth it when you consider the safety and protection that comes with obedience. You know, if you think God's rules are getting getting in your way, cramping your style, slowing you down, you've been deceived. In the long run, God's way proves to be much easier, not harder. God's way makes life easier, not harder. If you don't believe me, just ask the crew members on Paul's ship. And the natives there on Malta, they showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. Now, in mid-October, nighttime temperatures on Malta are in the low 50s. That's not including the rain that was falling. and That's not including the breeze that usually blows in off the ocean. It was probably chilly that night. And it was a great welcome for the locals to go out and, and to create this big bonfire for the water-soaked survivors. But notice here, who's gathering the firewood? Verse 3. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, notice this. The apostle Paul. This is the man who authored 14 of the 27 New Testament books. But he's not above collecting sticks. He was a servant first, apostle second. Paul is gathering. He's serving. He's collecting a bundle of sticks for the fire. And when he laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. When a poisonous viper hibernates, the snake stiffens up. And so Paul picked it up inadvertently with a pile of sticks. But when the snake got near the fire, he woke up. And when you wake up from hibernation, you're hungry. And so he took a bite out of Paul's hand. The venom was deadly. Thus the locals expected Paul to kill over immediately. But we're told in verse 4, So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow allow him to live. You know, the Maltese, they worshipped a goddess named Justice. And so here they assume that, that she's finally caught up to Paul, that she's rewarding him of the fate that he deserved. He escaped the sea, but now he's being punished by the snake. But... Paul shook off the creature into the fire and he suffered no harm. I love what Paul does with the snake. He just shakes it off. That's what he does. He just shakes it off. Of course, he could have rushed to the doctor or someone could have applied a tourniquet. At least Julius could have pulled out his knife cut across the bite marks and sucked out the venom. I mean, that's what John Wayne always did. But no, Paul just shakes off the snake in the fire and just carries on. In other words, rather than focus on the wound, rather than nurse his hurts, he just shakes it off and carries on. And this is a huge lesson for any of us who pick up sticks and who serve the Lord and who gather firewood to put on the fire that warms God's people. Any of us who serve the Lord, this is a lesson for us tonight. You're being a servant. You're giving to others in practical ways when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the old serpent Satan slithers along and seeks his poisonous fangs into your arm. It happens to everyone who serves the Lord. You get bit at times. You're trying to do good. And he comes back to bite you. And understand why Satan does this. He's trying to discourage your service to others. He wants you to focus on yourself, on your hurts, on your wounds. And so he tries to distract you. This is why the best way to handle a hurt or an attack or gossip about you or if other people come at you and try to take a bite out of you the best way to handle it is just shake it off. Just shake it off and keep on serving the Lord. That's how you handle it. If you take time off to nurse it or to fixate on it, you play right into Satan's hands. Just shake it off and keep serving the Lord. God protected Paul. And God will protect you. The bite won't be as bad as you think. God will neutralize the poison if you refuse to pamper the pain. Just keep on serving Him. I can't tell you how many times when somebody's tried to take a bite out of me, Pastor Sandy, did you hear what they're saying about you? You can't focus on it. You can't get fixated on it. You got to know God's going to take care of it. Just shake it off and just keep on doing what God's called you to do. And God will heal you and He'll deal with that situation. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a while, a long time, and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a God. Now, here's a legitimate fulfillment of Mark chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. You've probably read these words and wondered, what in the world is this talking about? Here's what Jesus predicted. These signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. But notice that line. They will take up serpents, and it will by no means hurt them. And we've all heard about the snake handlers handlers in Appalachia. You know, they literally pick up poison snakes and dance around to test the veracity of this verse. Hey, but rather than test God's faithfulness or their own faith, what they're really doing is testing God's patience, if you ask me. Such acts are not acts of faith. They're really presumption, if not foolishness. I don't believe God ever intended for believers to go out looking for cottonmouths and copperheads. Here's what he knew. God knew that the church would march out into the remotest parts of the world. That missionaries would go into jungles, to islands like Malta. Snakes and other dangers would be lurking. And here God promises supernatural protection to his witnesses, to those that go out in his name to share the gospel in remote places. David Brainerd was a missionary to the Delaware Indians years and years ago. The Indians made contact with brainerd long before he made contact with them in fact one day as the story goes a group of warriors slipped up quietly to his tent they were armed with knives and tomahawks their aim was to kill the white man the stranger but when they peered into his tent they were stunned by what they saw brainerd was on his knees in prayer and just behind him was a poisonous rattlesnake coiled and ready to strike The missionary, oblivious to the snake, continued to pray, while suddenly the snake lowered its head and slithered away. And the Indians were so amazed that they forgot their intention to murder him, and they went back to the camp with news of what they'd seen. When Brainerd finally approached the Indians, he was amazed at how well he was received. He thought they might kill him. Instead, the tribe treated him with great respect. It was years later that someone told him what the warriors had seen in his tent. It convinced them that he was God's messenger. See, when the men of Malta witnessed Paul's encounter with the viper, they go to even further conclusions. They assume he must be a god. And I, I'm sure that Paul sat him down and explained to them that no, he wasn't a god. He put his breeches on the same way they did. He was just a man, but he was a man with a message. And he went on to preach to them the truth and grace of Jesus Christ. Verse 7. In that region, there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island whose name was Publius who received us and entertained us courteously (coughs) for three days. Now recall, there were 276 people on this ship and not a single life was lost. Here we're told that Publius feeds and entertains the survivors for three days. He must have been a very wealthy man. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Paul went into him and prayed. And he laid his hands on him and healed him. And so when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. Publius' father became the poster boy for God's power on the island. Others came. And they also honored us in many ways When we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. You see, what had been a detour, God turned into a vital stop. The gospel came to Malta as a result of a storm and a shipwreck. That means whenever you get knocked off course, remember it could just be God rerouting your path in the direction he desires you to go. Verse 11. Now after three months, we sailed In an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers which had wintered at the island. You know, ancient ships were identified by the carvings in their bow. The twin brothers were the sons of the Roman god Jupiter, Castor, and Pollux. In Greek mythology, the twins protected distressed sailors. Paul and his crew, though, knew better. They had learned firsthand that it wasn't twins that protected them. It was God's only son who protected them, Jesus Christ. He's the one who really saves drowning sailors. God's only son, Jesus. And landing at Syracuse, we stayed three days. Now they're working their way to Rome. From there, we circled round and reached Regium. And after one day, the south wind blew. And the next day, we came to Puteoli, where we found brethren and where And we're invited to stay with them seven days. And so we went toward Rome. From Malta to Syracuse was 80 miles. From Syracuse to Regium was another 70 miles. From Regium to Puteoli, which by the way was the port city for Naples, it was 180 miles. And so they're working their way toward Rome. You know, it's interesting that Paul even found Christians, a small group of Christians in the Italian city of Puteoli. Just goes to prove how fast the gospel was spreading across the empire. Here, this little Italian village already had a church, already had a, a community of believers, even at this early stage. Well, they're obviously headed to Rome, and from there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Appii Forum and the three inns. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Well, the ship docked in Puteoli, and Paul traveled overland now, the remaining 125 miles to Rome. The road from the coast to Rome was a very famous road. It was called the Appian Way, and it was there that a large body of Roman Christians came out to greet him. You see, not only had they already heard about Paul, they had actually received a letter from him. Guess what it's called? The book of Romans. Paul had already written Romans to them. One of the most brilliant theological treatises ever written. And the book that we're going to study next, starting next week. Verse 16. Now when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard. But Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Once again, Paul was spared the dungeon. He was placed under house arrest where he was allowed visitors and provision. His only restriction was to stay chained to a Roman soldier. A different soldier was chained to Paul every six hours. They, they did six-hour shifts. That means four soldiers a day were chained to Paul. And this helps us to understand Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. There Paul writes of his internment in Rome, and he says this, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out For the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard that my chains are in Christ. In other words, guess what Paul was talking about with each of those guards when they were chained to him for those four hours. He preached to them the gospel. Imagine being chained to Paul for six hours. You either got saved or you went crazy, man. You definitely heard the truth of the gospel, that's for sure. I love what happens here. Paul turns a personal inconvenience into a powerful opportunity. Has that ever happened to you? Something that started out as an inconvenience, you realize later was an opportunity? I love how Paul signs off to the Philippians. In chapter 4, verse 22 of his letter, he writes, All the saints greet you, but especially... Those who are of Caesar's household. You mean some of Caesar's household, God's sake? I wonder how they heard the gospel. Well, they heard it from Paul, who kept witnessing to those soldiers who were chained to him in that, while he was under house arrest there in Rome. Well, it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. And you remember, this was always Paul's strategy. He would preach to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who when they had examined me, wanted to let me go, because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have called for you, to see you and speak with you, because for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. Then they said to him, We neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken any evil of you, but we desire to hear from you what you think, for concerning this sect, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. Now there were probably letters sent from the Sanhedrin there in Jerusalem to the Romans. But you see, God made sure that those letters were lost in the shipwreck. They didn't make it. Why? Because God wanted the Jews in Rome to hear Paul, to hear the gospel of Jesus with an open and unbiased mind. God took care of those letters. Verse 23, So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging. To whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. And I only wish we had the CD. Can you imagine Paul preached all day the things concerning Jesus? Just just imagine Paul, a a trained rabbi, going back into the Old Testament, pulling from the law of Moses, pulling from the prophets, pointing to Jesus explaining how all of the Old Testament scriptures had actually portrayed Jesus Christ. What a wonderful Bible study that must have been. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, and here Paul quotes Isaiah 6, Verses 9 and 10. Hearing you will hear and shall not understand. And seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Isaiah, 700 years before Christ had predicted the hard hearts of the Jewish people. That they would close their ears. They would shut their eyes to the truth of the gospel. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. And they will hear it. If the Jews have rejected it, God's sending it to the Gentiles. But when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. Boy, all it took to break up the party was to mention that God had targeted the Gentiles for salvation. The Jews couldn't accept that God's love is big enough for all people. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. And this is how Jesus should always be preached. With all confidence. Now, Paul's stay in Rome was quite profitable. During the two years he was there, he wrote four what we call prison epistles. He wrote the book of Ephesians, the book of Philippians, the book of Colossians, and his letter to Philemon. Eventually, Paul was tried before Nero and released. We don't have a transcript of his trial, we wish that we did. But you can bet that Paul shared the gospel to the emperor. In fact, Nero's rejection of Paul's message could have been the turning point in his life. For it was about this time that Nero went nuts. He literally went mad. He became vicious and angry. And guess who he chose to vent his frustrations on? He started killing Christians. He would throw them to the lion's. Or he would dip them in wax and burn them as candles to light his lewd parties. And when a fire ravaged the city, guess who Nero blamed for the disaster? He blamed the Christians. During the five years following his release, Paul continued to preach the gospel, possibly going as far as to Spain. He also wrote letters to Titus and Timothy. Eventually, though, Paul was rearrested by Nero. and He was thrown into Rome's maritime dungeon. It was there that he wrote his second and his final letter to Timothy. Tradition says that in 67 AD, Paul was beheaded for Jesus' sake. Through the centuries, people have criticized Luke for ending the life of Paul, the story of Paul here so abruptly. But keep in mind, Luke was not writing the life and times of Paul. The theme of the book of Acts is the spread of the gospel. What Luke was doing was showing us just how quickly the gospel got a grip on the world. Think about it. The gospel began on the edge of the empire, on the outskirts, in a faraway province known as Judea. But in less than 30 years, it's now worked its way to the capital city of Rome. At the very heart of the empire, under Caesar's own roof, Christianity's chief spokesman, spread the good news of Jesus to the citizens of Rome. Paul could have said, we've come a long way, baby. Before Jesus ascended, he had said to his disciples, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And by Acts 28, the first wave of that mission was complete, The ends of the earth had heard the gospel had come even to the capital of Rome. Of course, there's still much work to do, is there not? Because though the first century heard, there's still places in our world who haven't heard. There's still people who haven't heard. There's still people in your own neighborhood who haven't heard. It's been said, every generation of Christians is responsible for their own generation of heathen. Have we taken the gospel to our world? Let me close by asking you to think of a friend or of a neighbor who's not a Christian. I want you to actually think about a person in your mind right now. Will you go out of your way to show them a kindness? Will you even tonight begin to pray for their salvation? Will you even dare to speak to them about their soul? If you can't do these things, how are we going to spread the gospel? How are we going to reach the ends of our earth? In a sense, the book of Acts is still being written by you and by me. Father, we thank you for this wonderful book. We thank you for its many lessons, for the power on display, the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, may you fill us with the Holy Spirit tonight that we can be bold witnesses of Jesus to our Jerusalem, to our Judea, our Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. We thank you, Father. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.